Tonight's readings are from Genesis chapters 3 and 5. And the first reading is from chapter 3, starting at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And chapter 5, starting at verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. 
When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived uh, 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Round of applause for Larry, probably. Not all easy, those names. Most most people are sat there thinking, oh, I'm glad I'm not reading this. (laughs) Repeat after me, Mahalalel. (laughs) Hopeless. (laughs) Okay. Good evening. Uh, My name is Matt Fuller. Great to welcome you. If you're you're here um, for the first time, we'd like to read read Genesis 5 every week. Just to, no, we don't. We don't. In fact, I I can't remember ever hearing it read. I'm sure it often gets read, but um, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth and your word speaks to us today and we need it. We need even strange passages that uh, perhaps at first glance we wonder what on earth they're there for. Help us to understand these part of the scriptures rightly. But we don't just want understanding, Lord, we want faith. Faith that means we respond to you with our lives. Would your spirit be at work creating that within us, we pray. Amen. Now, where does evil come from? I mean, it's like perennial debate. It comes up in uh, different forms in different ways. Where does evil come from? It comes up in um, small-scale debates. So you can get the riots back in London over the summer. And uh, where does evil come from? Well, if you're a left-wing commentator, and everyone got to ride their hobby horse. It was marvelous if you're a political journalist and commentator. But if you're a left-wing commentator broadly, where does the evil come from? Well, it's probably society's fault. And he had some appearing on things like Newsnight saying, well, it really is the government's fault, isn't it, for cutting those tuition fees? It's just, you can't can't blame the individuals. It's just a cultural pressure placed upon them that creates evil. Because if you're a right-wing commentator, you say, nonsense, they're individually responsible, it is their parents' fault for bringing them up so badly, and that is the reason. But of course, life is complicated, so it's a mixture of both of those and a whole lot more. But if evil is from within humanity, that's fairly depressing. Because how do we change ourselves? What hope have we got? 
You can try and conjure up hope. As a... Um, uh, a book, an academic book that's caused a bit of a splash. I don't know if you've noticed this uh, in the academic world. Stephen Pinker is a Harvard psychologist. Um, he's written lots of controversial books that tell you make your money. And um, the most recent one that's come out this year is Angels of Our Better Selves. And in it, he essentially states that humans, and particularly uh, the Western world, is getting increasingly more civilized and less violent. That is the pattern throughout history. You might consider that a fairly bold claim to make at the beginning of the 21st century. When you've had the 20th century, and on Remembrance Sunday, we remember that this has been a violent century, and many have died. But he backs this up. He goes, if you look back to a prehistoric times, prehistoric man, probably 15% of the world population died in those sort of years, compared to only 3% of the world population in the 20th century. Of course, critics would... Now, why is he doing that? Sorry, before... Why is he doing that? He's a secular humanist. He, uh, his book won him an award from the um, British Humanist Association because he's essentially saying, mankind, we can do it. We can do it. We're getting more civilized. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are becoming better people. The problem is... Well, his critics have slightly torn him apart and said, well, hold on a minute. So your, your, physic, your figures for prehistoric man, 15% was killed in warfare. Where do you get those from? That just seems a little speculative that you conjure up. And of course, 15% of, whatever, 100,000 people worldwide, I don't know what the figure is he's claiming, but that's not 3% of a global population of 65 billion. That's a lot. And actually, it's disproportionately focused in certain regions. So you could say that humanity is just becoming better and better and better, and one day we'll, we'll all be without evil. But as most of Pinker's critics would say, you can't justify that from the evidence of history. In fact, as the review in the, uh, uh, the Sunday Times put it, barbarism does not lie behind us, it lies beneath us, ready to come out at any moment. Or perhaps biblically you want to say within us would be technically more accurate. Barbarism is a thing of the past. Really? You want to say that in the Western world in the 21st century? It's a very bold claim. By contrast, the biblical uh, comment or response or answer, where does evil come from? Well, we get it here in there. We've been looking at it in Genesis 3. The world was originally made good, but mankind has fallen from his original state of goodness. And evil has entered the world entered mankind's world because of our rejection of God. So we've looked at it the last few weeks, at the beginning, half of, uh, beginning verses of Genesis chapter 3, that uh, as uh, Matt Lloyd commented, humanity has a claim of sovereignty. It says we want to decide what is right and wrong. We want the knowledge of good and evil in the language of Genesis 3. We don't need you, God. We will decide. It's a crime of sovereignty. We want to be in charge. Last week, we looked at the outcome uh, from that. There's shame. There's fear. There's blame and mutual recrimination uh, against one another. And tonight, we come to look at God's response in Genesis chapter 3. His curse upon mankind. So, truth, it's a fairly bleak chapter, but it's a realistic chapter. And actually an optimistic chapter, because it says, yes, mankind is evil or capable of great evil. And that will always be the case throughout history. But 
We weren't made that way. And in Jesus Christ, we can escape that. So there's realism, but optimism, even as we look at uh, God's curse upon uh, mankind. Now, we're going to look at it in, uh, in four little ways, or four ways there, there, there on the uh, sheet. Uh, the woman's relationship is cursed. The man's work is cursed. Death is a result of the curse. And finally, Satan has felt God's curse. The first two are a bit uh, specific. I could have generalized them, out, generalized them out a little bit more. Relationships generally are cursed. Work generally is cursed for men and women. And yet there is a focus. Because men and women have not been interchangeable in uh, Genesis 2. And so we'll see, in particular it is the man's work, and in particular the wife's relationship to her husband that are the focus. But there is, of course, transfer. Relationships and work uh, are not as they are meant to be for either sex. Let's jump in. First then, the, women's, the woman's relationship is cursed. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 16. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said... I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Now here, the the woman's design is not completely eradicated, but it is broken or corrupted. So you look all the way back in chapter 1, verse 28. What was the intention? Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. That's what you're meant to do. I bless you and say, go and increase in number. Now the curse, your pain will increase as you increase in number. Do you see how the good thing, the very good thing of childbirth and child rearing has been corrupted, twisted at this point? So the woman still does what she was meant to do, but it hurts now. It's not as it's meant to be. What was meant to be just a pure source of blessing is still a blessing having children, but a burden. As those who've had kids will know, it's a burden. No one sings their way through labor. No one does that. So the role is distorted, but not abolished. So there's pain. But then the other thing, let's focus here mainly, there's, there's competition. So the Lord says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. If you come across these verses before, that is not amorous desire. Your desire will be for your husband. Uh, It is competition, conflict, desire. So look at the comparison. uh, Just chapter 4 is a very helpful comparison that Genesis gives us. Chapter 4, verse 7. You see those two verses, put them on the screen so you can see them compared. So Genesis 3.16, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. In chapter 4 to Cain, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do you see the sense in which desire is being used there? Not a, oh, I love you and I want to ravish you, but I want to control you. I want to be in charge. Sin desires to have you. Sin wants to master you, manipulate you, rule you. So back in Genesis 3.16, that's what God is saying. Your desire will be for your husband is, woman, Eve, you will want to master, control, manipulate your husband in order to get your will. Competition has entered marriage at this point. And for those who are married, oh yes, 
Uh, that's true, isn't it? That's true. Competition is entered marriage in, the, in, in large and in trivial ways. We were on holiday. Uh, our family was on holiday a couple of weeks ago. Um, half term. It's always our wedding anniversary in half term. It kind of falls that way. And so there's an exchange of cards. And uh, one of them was a funny card, you know, half sort of poking fun at uh, relationships. And uh, I thought it was poking fun at the man. Uh, Kerry, my wife, thought it was poking fun at the woman. And we had a contretemps over this. So there we are, 12 years of marriage. Oh, hurrah, we celebrate uh, marriage. Oh, have a card, have a card. And you have, and you have um, until um, one of us uh, pointed out, oh, this isn't what's meant to happen, is it? Um, when you celebrate your wedding anniversaries. Uh, not meant to go that way. Competition. Competition has uh, entered marriage. Now, the focus on that here is that the woman will try to control, manipulate her husband, but her husband, he will rule you. The husband will impose his will upon her. So the woman tries to manipulate, but the husband imposes his will upon her. It doesn't have to work that way. Remember back in Genesis, um, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, the model of marriage presented there is of the husband giving himself to servant leadership, serving his wife by taking a lead, taking initiative, sacrificing himself for her, leading in a way that hurts for the good of her. And uh, the woman is presented as a helper to him as he goes about that task. But that's gone. That pattern of the man showing initiative and protective care, that's gone. The, the pattern of a woman assisting him in that, that's gone. There's competition now. now any of you who've done um, any sort of marriage uh, prep or anything, you'd have heard this. But let's look at wives and then husbands. For the wives, rather than the pattern, the biblical pattern of supporting husbands, what happens, you can fall off the horse in two ways as a wife. You can seek to control your husband or you can collapse before him. Control or collapse are the two, two ways that the wives fall off the horse. Collapse is just to be a very, very weak wife and to never disagree with your husband. Whatever he wants goes. That is far more common than you might expect. People enter marriage, even highly competent women sometimes enter marriage and then just, oh, you do it all. You're responsible for everything. They collapse. And that's frustrating for a husband. It might be quite, you know, there's maybe a sentence which is quite pleasant for a while. You get your own way, but after a while it's boring. And husbands tend to look elsewhere, in truth, when that happens. The women can collapse. Well, the other side, and of course the side that's spoken of here, focused on, is that the wife can seek to control, dominate, possess the husband. The wives can do that, obviously. Bullying, nagging husband into submission. Oh, just anything for a quiet life. I just, just do it. Take me away. Just, just stop nagging me. And that is a feature in some marriages. More subtly, it can be done by tears. Just tears flow until the husband gives way. But I can think of uh, marriages, and uh, one stands out in my mind in particular, where the wife chose the house that she wanted, despite the husband not wanting to pay that much, because it meant he was tied into a job that he hated. 
the wife chose the location that she wanted, despite him not wanting to move to the other end of the country and leave everyone they knew in the church behind. The wife chose the holidays that she wanted. Again, despite the husband thinking, this is really stretching our budget and we're not planning prudently here. But the problem was he, she just wore him down and he gave way. And that's sin, that's competition that's entered the world. For the husband, well, the husband can fall off the horse on two, on two different sides as well. Rather than being a faithful servant, leader, who takes initiative and uh, gives himself for his wife, men can either dominate or abdicate responsibility. Dominate, just physically drive their way through, shout their way through in order to get their way. And of course, that's happened in much of history. Happened over and over and over again. It's an abhorrent thing. And if you ever fear that that's your problem, a really good diagnostic question to ask your wife is, is there anything that you would like to say to me, but you're scared to say to me because of my response, that I will fly off the handle, that I will go grumpy and refuse to say anything or speak to you? Is there anything that you're just scared to say to me, well, maybe that you're over-dominant, domineering as a husband. Of course, the other way of falling off the horse is to abdicate, abdicate responsibility. And, of course, the curse actually flows from that. We'll see it in a moment, but Genesis 17. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you must not eat, because you abdicated your responsibility, that's why we're in this mess, says God. So husbands can do that as well, even though that may not be the most common pattern in history, I don't know. But the man, it was we looked at last week, colluded in sin. And I wonder if amongst London professionals, that's more common in marriages, because we're tired. Husbands are tired from putting in long hours, from commuting, and come home and want to be lazy. And so don't take spiritual initiative. Don't lead the marriage. Don't lead their wives in praying. Don't lead their wives in spiritual priorities. Don't lead their wives in proactively making spiritual decisions. Don't lead them in saying, these are the people we're going to commit to and serve. This is how we're going to use our time in order to serve God and his people. These are the ways we're going to use our money to serve God and his people. Just vacillate, just does nothing and fails to lead. That may be more common. It's easy for men to be lazy. We're good at it. It doesn't take much effort. Yeah, this week I caught up with a friend, and he was telling me about a chap in his church, and uh, a chap who had a number of children, and was uh, talking to his three-year-old son about marriage, trying to explain marriage. And the three-year-old wasn't quite getting it. And uh, so the daddy got out um, got out photo album from uh, the wedding day. And said, so here's our wedding day. This is the day when mummy and daddy got married. And the three-year-old said, oh, I see. That's the day that mummy came to work for us. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> and of course... The, the dad said, don't ever repeat that. <laughs> and the boy said to his mummy, guess what I've just told daddy. And um, 
I think they had what's known as a full and frank conversation in uh, the political arena about that. That's not good. Men can be lazy. It's not hard. So women can control or collapse. Men can dominate or abdicate. But it's a failure. The pattern presented here is more commonly... Uh, verse 16, your desire, wives, will be for your husbands to control, manipulate, and he'll rule over you. I think the sense there is he'll dominate still. You won't get your way. But he'll rule over you badly, abdicating. Maybe, maybe. Now that, of course, is marriage that uh, the Lord is cursing or talking about there. Let me apply that briefly to a number then. Briefly, let me apply verse 16 outside of marriage. It's about his general church relationships. What does this look like in church in general or in courtship? Well, of course, the most helpful comment on this would uh, be in the New Testament, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, where Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if, you, as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Don't rebuke an older man harshly. Exhort him as if you're your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as brothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So very, very helpful that. So if, um, let's take it this way around, if you're, if you're uh, a guy, a young guy, how do you treat your mother? Hopefully with respect. And you honor her, you listen to her opinion, you take her advice. Now there'll come a point, there's a tipping point in life, when actually you have to take care of your mother. Perhaps your father has died, she needs your help. Of course there's a tipping point when actually you become the one who gives advice. That happens. But essentially, honor. So, I mean, to be honest, if you're a 25-year-old bloke or something like that, please don't tell a 50-year-old woman who's raised a family and brought up Christian children, who's got grandchildren, or don't tell her how to live the Christian life. That'll be frankly quite embarrassing for you to do so. Honor them. But uh, women who are a similar age relate to as sisters. How do you treat your sisters in good moments? How do you treat your sisters? Well, you protect them. You look after them. You care for them. You're not aggressively, but sorry, you, you're talking to my sister. Can I, you know, is, is there, you know, you look after your sisters, you do that, relate in that sort of way. And again, the flip side, you relate to younger men as brothers. How do you look after your brothers in your good moments, uh, ladies? You care for them, you look after them. You relate healthily with absolute purity and protection. Now, of course, normally the helpful thing about brother-sister relationship is there is no confusion. There's no romantic confusion uh, uh, that can muddy things. So let me just very briefly say three quick things on that. Men be clear, women be kind, both be forgiving. Okay? Men be clear, women be kind, both be forgiving. What do I mean by that? To create ambiguity in a relationship is unkind. It is unkind. So men in particular, be clear. Spending time with someone of the opposite sex Exclusive time, sorry. Spending exclusive time with someone of the opposite sex without really talking about what's going on is confusing. You might think, well, this is nice. I've never had a sister. I grew up in a family of, of, of three boys. I've never had a sister. And now I've got this lovely girl who just acts like a sister to me. And she's thinking, what's going on? 
What's going on? He keeps asking me out for coffee. What is going on here? But that's just unkind. If you don't know what's going on, of course it can be the other way around. So, but let me say, men, be clear. Because in a marriage, men, you'll take the initiative in a servant-hearted fashion. So why not get some practice? Even before then, men, be clear. Women, be kind. So if the men are being men about it and taking initiative and saying, look, would you like to go out for dinner? Because I'd like to explore the possibilities of a relationship with you. Oh, I've got it out of my head. You know. <laughs> or would you like to eat? We could, you could use this language now. Would you like to go out for dinner in a non-ambiguous way? <laughs> and we all know what we mean. Okay. So a guy asks you, and you think, you and me. <laughs> really? You must be joking. Don't say that out loud, please. <laughs> if a guy has put himself out there on the line, be kind. Be kind. If there's a guy who's asked out a few girls in a sort of your friendship group, be kind. Don't say, listen, you're getting a reputation for yourself. You're asking out anyone. You want to be... Just be kind. In one sense, he's being proactive. He's having a go. Good on him. <laughs> Women, be kind to the men when they put themselves out there. Both... Be forgiving. Both be forgiving. Because sometimes with the best will in the world, it goes a bit wrong. And you, you go out in a friendship group, and you, you're going up to the cinema, there's whatever, eight of you, and you're talking to one, and, and then the next a week later, it's in the pub, and you're talking to the same person, and one of you thinks, ooh, and the other thinks, ooh, and, you know, it's just, you know, and you're completely on different wavelengths. And eventually, the one who's got a bit keen is very disappointed. Sometimes what happens is, oh, he was just so unreasonable, he let me on. She was just deeply unreasonable, she batted her eyelids at me. I saw them, I saw those eyelids. And it's just, oh, look, just forgive one another, okay? Just forgive and move on. Don't, sometimes these big dramas can blow up. And for goodness sake, many are at an age and stage where you, you, there's dating, courting, whatever you want to call it. And uh, just make it easy. Be clear, be kind. Be forgiving. Okay? It's a bit of a tangent, I know. The woman's relationship is cursed. Let's move on. Uh, second thing. Second thing, the man's work is cursed. We'll pick up a bit of pace. The man's work is cursed. Okay, verse 17. To Adam, God said, because you listened to, the wife, to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. What will happen? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The man's condemnation then, or curse, is in his relationship to the ground, the earth. Again, like the woman, his role as worker is not abolished, but it is tarnished. It becomes toil. Now, now, we need to be slightly careful. I think people get a bit carried away here. The earth is cursed in its relationship to man. So this planet is still beautiful and wonderful. Verse 17, the focus is, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. The focus is upon man's interaction with the ground. That now will be hard. Work will be hard now. 
I had to say for myself, I take it that thorns and thistles of verse 18, they were there before the fall. They were there as food for pigs and whatever animals eat, thorns and thistles. But now they're going to grow up amongst man's labor. They're growing where they shouldn't grow. Man's work is cursed. Verse 19, food still grows, but now it requires sweat. So in case you live in an idealistic world, Genesis 3 says, in every job, there will be frustrations and obstacles and wastes of time in every single job. You'll go to gigs, concerts as a musician, and no one will show. You'll work for months on a certain deal, and then it collapses. You'll work through the night, two nights in a row, to just beat that deadline on the essay, and then the computer goes, goodbye. And it doesn't. And that happens. That happens because our work is cursed now. So don't be surprised at that. Our work is, and will always be until this world ends, a mixture of Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis 2, satisfying, fulfilling. Genesis 3, miserable, frustrating, difficult, unsatisfying. Expect both. Expect both to be work to be a mixture of both now. Because man's work is cursed. Third thing. Death is a result of the curse. Can you see we're getting more encouraging? Death. Death then is a result of the curse. Now verse 19 talks of physical death. Uh, From dust you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you'll return. But this flows from spiritual death. Just concentrate with me for a a couple of minutes here. Let let me work through this with you. Back in chapter 2 verse 17, what's the, uh, the, the promise there? Chapter 2, verse 17. God says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Eat that fruit, you will die. Chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent, Satan says, You will not die if you eat the fruit. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. What happens? Well, they don't physically die. But at that moment, spiritually, they are cut off from God. You see, clarity in a moment, 22 to 24. So look, this is a controversial area. And uh, next week, we'll do a question time uh, in the evening service uh, again on Genesis. But um, for myself, I don't see any reason why the physical death of animals and creatures couldn't have taken place before this fall. Christians would disagree on that. But for myself, I don't see why that's necessarily true. But when Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree, spiritually they're cut off, and death is a consequence which flows from that. I think that's what's going on. Let's look at the detail then of verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Hmm. The man has now become like one of us. Really? Really? Omnipotent? Omniscient? You don't see Adam and Eve going, Oh, oh, 
I'm going to create a world too. Pa-ching, pa-ching, pa-ching. In what way, I don't think that's how God did it, by the way. In what way are they like him? Well, it's defined. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Do you remember what that means? Deciding what is good and evil. The man has become like one of us, saying, I'm in charge. I don't need to listen to anyone else. I'm sovereign. Man and woman has become like God in that sense. And so therefore, they need to be cut off from the tree. Man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Briefly, remember, there's nothing magical about the tree. There's nothing magical about the fruit. You don't sort of eat this fruit and, and there's nothing. It's a, it's a sign or symbol. God is the life giver. The tree is the sign of being in relationship with him. If you're cut off from the tree, you're cut off from him. That's the symbolism of uh, Genesis 1 to 3. Their relationship with God is broken. Then you get these miserable verses at the end. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Miserable. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, man was placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and care it for it, guard it, literally. So the man had been placed in, in the garden to work it and guard it. Now, as a result of the curse, kicked out of the garden, he has to work the world, the land of the world, hostile, rebellious land, and the angels now guard the garden from man. See how it's all been so distorted. It's all gone terribly, terribly wrong. It wasn't meant to be this way. We're meant to be in the garden, in relationship with God. Now we're outside the garden, and the way is barred to us. That is true of all of us. So the most significant consequence of this sin and this fall for all of us, the curse of God upon us is, now we are not born in relationship with God. We're born exiled from him. We're born under his curse. So sometimes people say, oh, we're all children of God, aren't we? Really? If we just realize it? No, we are not. We are exiled. We're spiritually born on the streets homeless. I uh, read this week, I was reading stuff this week about uh, Kim Jong-il and his uh, despicable regime in North Korea. Uh, A few years ago, a Japanese doctor escaped and so has written lots of uh, stuff about uh, what life was like in North Korea under Kim Jong-il. He uh, he moved there and um, with his wife and uh, then had his passport removed and wasn't allowed to return to Japan. So he was trapped in North Korea. They uh, had a family, they had children there, but their children grew up under that regime and were heavily influenced by that regime. And so in fact started spying upon their parents because they were told by their teachers that was a good thing for them to do. Of course, and the parents, they tried to educate their children. They tried to say, look, this isn't, this isn't right. We don't belong here. We belong in another land, but we are cut off from the land in which we belong. And what they needed desperately was a rescuer. Wonderfully, a Christian missionary came in and smuggled in some passports and uh, got these guys out. They needed a rescuer to come in. But you see, the children 
born in exile under an oppressive ruler. And yet they chose to, no one coerced them, it was just influence, they chose to live for that ruler and reject their homeland of Japan. Do you see that is very much the biblical picture of sin? So you and I are born exiled from the presence of God, living in a country, living in a, not just the United Kingdom, but living in uh, spiritually under an oppressive ruler. We belong to Satan in black and white terms, but we're cut off from God. Now, you can try and educate people, but we're still influenced by who we are. We're born in a way, we're born in exile and therefore naturally go with the flow. No one coerces us to, but we choose to sin. And what we need is someone to come in and rescue us. And of course, that is the biblical picture of precisely what takes place. So death is a result of the curse. You and I, naturally, we're born under a curse. We die, that'll always take place, physical death. But more significant than that is the spiritual death, cut off from God, exiled from his presence. We're all born that way. We need someone to take us back. The last thing. Let's turn back to verse 15. Satan has felt God's curse. Last thing briefly. Verse 15. Here's a great glimmer of hope in a bleak chapter. Now it's a bit naughty to um, go back to these verses rather than take them at the beginning. Apart from the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 3. The Bible has more to say. And uh, here's a foretaste of it in verse 15. Let me read it from verse 14, in fact. The Lord God said to the serpent, we know that's uh, Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you of all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. The Lord says, there will be enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. There'll be enmity between your offspring, Satan, and hers. Very strikingly, we're working through Matthew's Gospel in the mornings. Very strikingly, three times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as you vipers, you serpents. Chapter 3, chapter 12, chapter 23. Oh, maybe they are Satan's offspring, those who are very obviously opposing God's operation. They will always oppose God's people, but but the last clause of chapter six, of verse 16 excuse me, uh, verse 15. He, singular, will crush your singular head and you, singular, will strike his heel. Ultimately, says the Lord in Genesis, there will be one that destroys you, Satan, but even as he does so, you will bite him and hurt him. One will come who is a champion for the whole of humanity, who is strong enough to defeat you, Satan, who will do so for the good of mankind, but in doing so will be bitten and will receive poison within him. Of course, what Genesis 3 is speaking about comes clear in the New Testament. It's the work of Jesus Christ, his work. He is the champion who is strong enough to defeat Satan, who does so for you and for me. And yet as he does so, he is bitten. 
he takes in himself the curse. It is as if, as Jesus dies there on the cross, and the wrath of God falls upon him, Satan bites him, but his fangs are broken and his poison is spent. So Jesus took the curse of the fall upon himself and rose and triumphed over Satan. And if you're a Christian, you have taken the curse already in Jesus Christ and you have risen with him to triumph over Satan. Spiritually, that is already true. He's done it for you as your champion, as your representative. Which means that verse 23 of the whole chapter turns around on its head. If you're a believer... Chapter 3, verse 23, this is true of you. So the Lord God throws open the gates of the Garden of Eden and says, come in. And as you approach, the cherubim put away their swords and they say, welcome. You belong in the presence of God and you can stay here for eternity. Do you see that that is true? If you are united by faith with Jesus Christ, that is true of you. So look, here's the curse of God. Relationships are cursed, work is cursed. Even more significant, death. Spiritual, which means we'll die physical, comes as a result of the curse. That's what you get to in chapter 5. That's why we had it read. Did you hear the mantra over and over again? And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. You think this isn't very exciting? Yeah, that's where we're getting to. Death comes. That's why evil remains in this world. It'll remain in this world until Jesus returns. But the curse has been removed from believers. If you're united by faith with Jesus Christ, the curse has been paid. You've right risen and triumphed over Satan. And you will be there with him in eternity. If you know that, well, it'll help now. It'll help give you the grace in your workplace, give you the grace, in your marriage, in your relationships. It'll change them. But more importantly, heaven is open. We'll see it wonderfully in a moment. But the bar to heaven has been removed. The curse has been paid in full. We can walk right in. And we can do that tonight if you've never done it. If you're a Christian, that's true of you already. Spiritually, and one day you will walk in. You can say hello to the cherubim on either side if they're still there. But you're walking physically because Jesus has taken that curse. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the realism of this chapter and its optimism. Thank you for its realism, its diagnosis of evil in this world, of how relationships, work is tainted and marred by what took place then. But great hope as well hope that even though our lives uh, uh, one day will end in physical death, there is life beyond that. Even though naturally we're born in exile and under the curse, in Jesus Christ we have overcome that. We thank you that when he took the curse, when he triumphed over Satan, he did so for us as our champion. And for those of us who are in him, we look forward to life with you forever walking with you once again in your new creation. And we praise you for it. Amen.